Welcome to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book, with Susie Chase. She's just a home cook in New York City, sitting at her dining room table, talking to cookbook authors. Hi everyone, I'm Hedy McKinnon, and my latest cookbook is called To Asia With Love. There's something that sets your cookbooks apart from the rest. You have this lovely way of connecting beautiful, doable recipes with the photography and a feeling of comfort and hominess. To me, you're one of the cool Brooklyn moms, along with Jesse Sheehan. For those of us who adore your cookbooks, I think we feel like we know you, your family, and your beautiful kitchen through the photography in your cookbooks. And with To Asia With Love, you imagined a book that not only conveyed nostalgia, but also captured a strong sense of home. So you took all the photos in the cookbook? I did. I did. And all the photos were taken on film, which is probably a departure from every cookbook on the cookbook shelf um, right now. But as soon as I had the idea for the book, the photography, it was a no-brainer. You know, I knew I wanted to shoot it on film. I knew I wanted to give it that really irrefutable sense of home and warmth. And to be quite honest rawness. I'm not a professional photographer. Um, I'm not selling myself as a professional photographer, but I think I have, um, particularly with all my books, but particularly with this book, I have such a connection with the recipes and the photos in the book is part of the storytelling. And I think over the years I've become more, I've wanted, I've had more at stake in terms of how the photos look. I felt that as the books have progressed. So with this one, I just thought to myself, I want to shoot it myself and I want to shoot it on film. I mean, because, you know, a lot of professional photographers say to me when they shoot a book like this, they're trying to make their digital photos look like film. So a part of me was like, I'm just going to shoot it on film and they're largely unedited and I think it just lends just a beautiful um, raw honest portrayal of every dish and it's just something so special you know film really invites you into the frame it's not perfect and that's probably why it's not used very much in food photography is that you don't get the details that you get in uh, digital photography. Um, You can't sharpen up edges in that same way. So there's a lot of layers in in one photo. The secondary reason, um, I don't know if it is the secondary reason, but it's one of the main reasons uh, why I wanted to use film was because um, it was like this kind of indirect nod to my father who um, doesn't really figure a lot in this story because it's really a book about my mum and my relationship with my mum, but my dad was... Um, an amateur photographer and he always had cameras lying around the house and he developed all his photos in a makeshift dark room in our laundry and I remember admiring his photos so much as a kid like I didn't know anything about photography you know as a young child you know when I was under 10 but I would look at his photos and just think he was a master and I always took that away with me, you know, he, the way he captured images. Yeah, I mean, that, I guess that's the other part of why I felt like I needed to do this, that part of the book for myself um, in this particular book. I love that so much. And I love when the photo kind of matches up with the recipe. You know what I mean? 
Yes. Like, I like you have super homey and comforting recipes. And then you look at the photo and it depicts kind of what the feeling is surrounding this recipe. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's also because it's not styled, you know, like there's no, there was no stylist on this book and it was just me. I would cook the meal and take a photo. And I think as I explained, at the, I think it's the very first page of the book that, you know, it's everything in the photos is, is my dining table, is, is my flatware, my plates, my children in their, my children aren't in this book very much actually, but if they are or their hands are in it, it's them in the actual act of eating, not in a posed act of eating, if you know what I mean. And and that's that's the difference, you know. So everything you see is real. You know, you, I don't know if you, that happens that much in, in cookbooks anymore where there is no styling, no props, um, no people sitting around acting as hand models. It, they're just, it's just my family, really. So, yeah. It's very inviting for home cooks, I think. I, I'm very intimidated by like the perfection of the cookbook. Yeah. And then I wonder if they put more into how it looked than the recipe. Absolutely. Yes. It is a different process. You know, I think when there's styling involved, you're making the dish according to how you think it's going to look the best on camera, on film, or, you know, on digital photography. But I think the difference with my dishes is that they were made according to the recipe and that is how they actually will look if you cook it at home. Because, you know, I don't see myself as any different to anyone else that is picking up my book to cook dinner for their families every night. You know, I am a home cook. I don't have any professional training. So the things that I'm cooking are the things that I'm able to achieve at home, in my own home kitchen for my family. So um, I think that that's, you know, you talked about kind of you don't find it intimidating and that was a really important part of not only this book but every book and every recipe I write is that that element that anyone can do it. It's not it's not about technique. It's not about hours slaving over a dish. Um, it's just about good, wholesome food that you can put on the table to nourish your family every night. So To Asia With Love is your homecoming, a return to the flavors of your childhood. Throughout the house, there was always evidence of your next meal or food for the future. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I um, I grew up in a very traditional Chinese household in Sydney, Australia. Um, my parents had immigrated in the late, my dad in the late 50s, my mum in the early 60s, and they married in Australia and they, you know, were essentially a very Chinese family. Um, and so I'm the third child and I grew up kind of caught between these two cultures. My mum, having just arrived in Australia straight from China and having, you know, gone, she got married straight away and had children straight away, her life was very much centred within the home. And almost every memory of my mum when from when I was younger is of her cooking, is of her in the kitchen. Um, she started every day with a big Asian breakfast, a savoury meal. Um, whether that was fried rice or noodles or you know congee or um, macaroni soup, there was always 
something brewing from the very start of every day. And it didn't really stop. You know, everything that she did was somehow focused upon the meal she was cooking or the next meal, you know, like she would have um, greens sitting in the colander. She would have meat defrosting in the sink. She would have some sort of broth going on on her stovetop. There was just always food, an endless parade of food in our house. As a kid, as a Chinese kid who grew up in a Western world, I'm like thinking, why doesn't she work? Why isn't she out? Like, why isn't she at school helping, helping out at school like all the other mums? There was definitely judgments I had about things that I thought were her choices. But a lot of these things weren't her choices, you know, like she didn't have the opportunities. Um, And so being this young mother and wife living in the suburbs of Sydney in a country where she had not grown up, she didn't speak the language, cooking was really probably her survival in many ways and the way she kept her traditions alive, the way she stayed connected to her homeland, almost desperately, you know, sometimes I think of it now and I think it was almost desperate the way she cooked um, because she was really trying to hang on to something. And that's something that, that's a story that you'll hear a lot from immigrants. You know, when you're in a foreign place, food is the way you stay connected to the life that you left behind. You know, the story of immigrants is is a complex one. And being somewhat of an immigrant myself now, my story is very different in every way to my parents' immigrant story. But, you know, immigrants are very um, indebted to the their host country, the country that they moved to. And I think my mum, my parents definitely had that indebtedness. But there's always that sadness, too, of the life they left behind. And um, I think food was really my mum's way of really staying connected. What does she think about this cookbook? It's kind of hard to say, to be completely honest, because she doesn't say that much about my professional work. My mum's been with me kind of my whole journey in food. She used to cook for me, with me. Actually, when I had my salad business in Sydney, she influenced actually a lot of my recipes in both flavour and ingredients. But she was in my home at the time as my, my, my youngest son's babysitter. You know, she would come over and, you know, kind of pretend she was looking after him, but really just always find herself in the kitchen. In terms of like what she really thinks of this book, she hasn't really said, you know, she makes comments about pictures and recipes and the things I included, but she really hasn't said that much about this book. And that might seem odd to a lot of people, but it's not odd to me. I mean, it's a a very Asian mum uh, trait um, not to issue direct praise to their children. The A lot of the pride is internalised and um, I'm hoping that's <laughs> that it's there. But honestly, she's, very, she's said very little about this book, even though she knows that it's pretty much 100% inspired by her. It's actually what I expected. You have a dumpling for every season into Asia with Love. Summer is coming up. What's your favourite dumpling? So for summer, I'm excited about tomatoes or tomatoes. And in the book, as you mentioned, there is 
I was very, I'm very, very excited about this is dumplings by the seasons. And it's basically several dumplings for every season, working with, you know, things that you might pick up from the farmer's market or what you'd get from your local grocery place. There's a tomato and egg dumpling in the book, which is basically a riff on this very classic Chinese dish called tomato and eggs. Um, There's several versions of it in the book, but tomato and eggs is basically a home-style tomato stew that is mixed with um, scrambled eggs. And it's kind of on this kind of sweet side, sweet and salty side. And I kind of made it into a dumpling filling. And so it's one of the really exciting things for me in this book. And I think from early reactions, it's one of the things that readers have really loved is the fact that it's showing that dumplings can be made with lots of things and not just say a straight pork filling with some vegetables or just or not even with Asian ingredients. I was really excited to show that because that's how I eat dumplings at home. Like I don't just make Asian style fillings. I don't just use shiitake mushrooms and tofu and um, water chestnuts and napa cabbage. I use lots of things that I just eat normally and I can fashion those into a dumpling um, filling. So it's one of the sections of the book I'm really excited about because it just shows people the possibilities. So here's another thing that I've never heard of. Noodles on a sheet pan. (laughs) I mean, that just opens up a whole new world for me. You know, one of the characteristics that I love most about my mum's chow mein is the textures. There is um, crispy bits because she pan fries the bottom and then she kind of leaves the middle bit soft and then she has a sauce that goes over the top. But um, I love a sheet pan dinner. You know, which working mum doesn't love a sheet pan? Right. You let, you let someone else do the work for you, in this case the oven. So I think um, I just kind of threw everything onto a pan and gave it a go. And I was really impressed by what came out. I was like, wow, like on high temperature, and I, I love a high temperature bake, you're getting these crispy bits that feel like you've had to work for it, but you haven't done anything. It's been such a popular recipe because who doesn't want that complexity in in texture and flavor without really doing much at all? And the other wonderful thing about that particular dish is that you can use virtually any vegetable. Like I think in my recipe, I use like um, broccoli, peppers and carrots, asparagus, baby corn from a can because I I love baby corn from a can. But you could really just use any vegetable you have languishing in your vegetable drawer. It's a great fridge um, clean out dish. You know what you taught me how to do? You taught me how to cook with lettuce. It's so good. I mean, I think that recipe was in family, right? The the braised lettuce. In Chinese culture, we don't eat a lot of raw food, which is ironic since I make salads. But growing up, you know, like there's this belief that raw foods make your body cold. And so, you know, it's not seen as like that healthy for your body because it's your body's, it makes it harder to to digest. Um, And so we didn't really eat any raw foods growing up. So lettuce was always cooked. So when I saw people eating it raw, I was like, what? You eat lettuce raw and you put it in a sandwich? Like that's pretty interesting. Lettuce is just like any other leaf leafy vegetable right and um particularly and i'm talking particularly of iceberg lettuce which is much maligned for some reason but 
you know, when it's cooked, it's so damn good, right? <laughs> I love iceberg lettuce. I, so do I. love I've loved it. it. <laughs> to me, it's still the best lettuce. Yeah, the best. <laughs> <laughs> totally. <laughs> Bring back iceberg. The other night I made your perfect jammy soy eggs. So I guess the key to soy eggs is the five spice powder, which I have never used in my soy eggs. I mean, it might seem odd to have the perfect jammy egg recipe in this book, but I grew up with a lot of eggs. You know, my eggs are like a big part of a, a Chinese diet or my my particular Chinese diet. Um, my mom had a really strong belief in eggs as brain food. You know, before every exam, she made me an egg sandwich. But I've always cooked eggs really haphazardly. Like I don't pay attention. I don't look at what I'm doing, like when I boil an egg, I just throw it in the water. Like I tend to do that sometimes. So um, I basically like worked it out what I needed to do. And it was so exciting. It was life changing, you know, to know how to boil an egg to the way you want it. And um, I was so excited. I put it in the book. (laughs) And I think it's been so popular. So many people have reached out and said, oh my God, I can't believe I finally know how to make a jammy egg. And this is like such a joy because I'm like, wow, see, I'm not alone in my little kitchen disasters and journey. It does pay to share even what you think is such a basic skill. A lot of us don't have those basic skills. So I'm really excited that everyone is making perfect jammy eggs now. And in the book, I've also got, you know, three ways to to marinate them, um, to add a bit of flavor and color. And there's also some beet eggs in there. So I love, I mean, so beautiful, like the beautiful hued pink. And that beet egg, the longer you leave it, the further in the pink moves towards the yolk. So I've left it so long that the yolk has almost turned pink. It's really cool, actually, to to try. And then the third egg is an amazing tea, a tea marbled egg. Um, So you're basically making a tea broth and you're kind of cracking the egg so it's going to create a marbled effect on the on the egg whites and you're kind of cooking it in there and, and soaking it in there and it just gives off this beautiful kind of smoky earthy flavor the u.s senate passed the covid19 hate crimes act on thursday aimed at addressing the recent spike in hate crimes against asian americans across the u.s amid the ongoing pandemic there has been a dramatic surge of violence and hate crimes targeting asians and i wanted to check in with you and ask how you're doing and what i can do to be an ally Thank you for asking, Susie. Um, you know, it's been a really it's it's been a really complex thing to unpack. You know, it's one thing to be called names, which most of us have experienced our entire entire lives. It's one thing to to think about the the bigotry and and, and hatred and biases that you're um, against you just because of the way you look. But to actually um, to think that people are, are dying because of the way we look, it's been a lot. And so, and, and you know, I might add, black people have experienced this their entire lives and continue to. And I've had to ask myself, you know, a lot of questions. 
I've had to really confront the injustices that I'm not I'm no longer willing to accept. I and a lot of people who look like me and a lot of POCs, we we've turned a blind eye to a lot of the latent racism and the casual racism over the years, growing up, ever since I was a kid, you know, like being called names, being um, called derogatory names, made fun of, people who've asked me about what my name means, like Hetty, like it's not because it's unusual, telling me that's not really my name, it's got to be short for something. All these things are all like, they're all, they're all laced in the fact that I look the way I look. And it's been confronting to have to think about you know, 40 plus years of being treated this way. And and now I've had to confront what I'm no longer willing to accept. And that's not only for myself, but it's predominantly for my children. My children are biracial. So it's been an interesting conversation with them because, you know, they have a different experience to me and they are very close to their Asian heritage, probably closer to their Asian heritage. But then, you know, they live in a Western world and they're white adjacent, and that's another thing that I have to, um, I have to kind of, you know, unpack and and try to understand. But in terms of, you know, how people can help or how people can be allies, I think people have to really stop and ask questions. You know, Susie, I really think that there is so much going on. And so many layers to this story, but not only from this tragic, horrendous incident um, in Atlanta, but just the everyday stuff that we have to deal with. And, um, you know, in food, the, you know, when you just look at one industry, the one that we're in, food, you know, you you see this disrespect towards um cultural recipes and I'm not I don't believe that that people can't cook food from other cultures I think that you are welcome we are all welcome to food from other cultures as long as there is respect as long as there is um you are doing everything you can to respect where the food has come from and the people it's come from and the stories behind the food and I just don't see that happening And I'm going to be really honest here. I just see a real pillaging of our culture's food in the food media, not just in press, but in the books that are being published by publishers. It's heartbreaking. There are sliding scales of dishes, you know, but there are some dishes that you know that only kids who grew up in a a really specific type of Chinese household Eight, because they are so specific. They're specific to a region, and when you see people taking that recipe and just taking, stripping it of its value and its history and its its heritage, it's really heartbreaking. And like these are not violent crimes against Asian people, but it's stealing from our culture. You know, and I just think that people can be allies by asking more questions, by questioning themselves. I ask myself questions all the time about, is this authentic to who I am? Am I honouring where this comes from? All these questions that I ask myself when I'm writing a recipe or writing a book or writing an article, everybody needs to ask those questions. I've been privileged enough 
to have grown up with a mother who gave me this rich culture and that I'm trying to pass that on to my own children. And I don't even feel like it's it's mine. I'm just interpreting it. And I just feel like there's just not enough of that in in the food media right now. So I don't really think I answered your question, Susie. <laughs> no, well I, I just I just, I just wanted you to know that I honor you and I honor your work. And the reason I reached out to you to have this cookbook on was because I wanted to elevate your story. Yeah. And I think that generally in the com- being, the conversations I've been having, they've been really thoughtful conversations about these topics. And, you know, like some topics are harder to talk about than others. Obviously, I try to force myself to share something. And it's not always the most coherent answer you're going to get, because it's laced in so much emotion. And it's laced in so much of, you know, a lifetime of feeling like you don't really belong. And so, you know, I don't think you could ask me this question on two different days and you'd probably get two very different answers. But um, it's really hard to unpack these these issues that you carry around with you. But people have been really interested in it. And there's a, such a responsibility in releasing a book called To Asia With Love during this time of Stop Asian Hate during this time of hate crimes. This book is written as a love letter to not any specific place, but to a culture which has raised me and sustained me and that I owe so much to. You know, it is it is hard to talk about sometimes, yeah. but there's a, there's a comma in, you know, to Asia with love. And it's because it was written as a love letter to, to this culture, to not to one place. Like people have said to me, oh, you know, Asia is not a monolith. And it's like, to me, it's not, it's not even a place. It's, it's culture. It's in my blood. It's, um, you know, it's my DNA. So now I'll ask a happier question. (laughs) (laughs) That wasn't not a happy question. Yeah, it was, it was was heavy. (laughs) Now to my segment called last night's dinner. It's not that heavy (laughs) where I ask you what you had last night for dinner. It was a very late night. Um, my boys were like playing baseball, so we came home and I made pizzas at nine o'clock. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so late! I know. What so kind late. of pizzas? I made. Um, so I have this favorite pizza. Um, so I use like um, dough from my local Italian deli. So I didn't make the dough, um, but my favorite pizza is potato pizza, like a pizza with thinly sliced potatoes is something I had when I was about six or seven years old. But my sister is um, about seven years older than me. So she went and she was, so she was about, she was a teenager. She must have been about 13. And she went to a party to, at, at her friend's house who was Italian. And she took me along with her. It was very weird. And the grandmother, of course, was the only person that spoke to me. And um, so I sat in the kitchen with my sister's friend's grandmother and she fed me <laughs> potato pizza with rosemary on top. And I have to tell you, Susie, is really one of my most vivid food memories from childhood. And every time I eat a potato pizza, I am sitting in that kitchen with my sister friend's grandmother eating that potato pizza. So where can we find you on the web and social media? 
I'm at ArthurStreetKitchen.com. It's my, still my original website for when I had the business. Um, and on social media, I'm at Hedy McKinnon. That's it. Well, thank you, Hedy, so much for coming on Cookery by the Book Podcast. I am so thankful I know you. Oh, thank you, Susie. I feel the same way. It's been a great conversation. Follow Cookery by the Book on Instagram. And thanks for listening to the number one cookbook podcast. Cookery by the Book. 